Welcome to Ed Table Talk for January 2015. I don't know about you, it still sounds strange to me to to say 2015. I, I hearken back to when I thought 1984 was going to be forever, but uh, yeah, it's 2015, all right. And um, uh, this is a great show. We've got a show here um, really taking a look at uh, the nature of assessment and uh, uh, really coming to understand, you know, summative assessment reformation is what we're calling this, and looking at blurring the lines between learning and testing. And uh, you can take that for what it's worth. There's so many different ways we can discuss that topic. And uh, we've got three great guests with us, as usual, and uh, uh, and we'll hear from them in just a little bit and throughout the show, and they'll introduce themselves. And, um, uh, d- of course, want to thank our, our uh, lead sponsor, and that is MCH Strategic Data, and the great group over at MCH. And you'll hear a little bit more about them and some of the great things that they're up to um, in the show. Um, so with this, with this program, assessment is something that every child has certainly encountered, and parent as well. I know that, um, uh, you know, when I was a kid, there certainly wasn't as much assessment as we have today. But I do remember um, being tested for uh, gifted and talented, of which I may be neither, but who knows, uh, when I was in fourth grade. And I remember the 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 fellow asking me um, how many inches are there in a foot and a half and uh, uh, honestly I didn't know I said tell me how many inches there are in a foot and I'll tell you how many are in a foot and a half and so I think the kinds of uh, the kinds of content knowledge that we've historically asked kids to to know has really shifted particularly with the addition of new devices and uh, and and yet the 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 system is pushes back a little bit you know there's still a lot of uh, uh, a, a lot of resistance to changing the nature of how we assess and and what those assessments look like, and again, a cultural need to uh, to really quantify and compare in that fashion, and a general belief that um, that these kinds of assessments are the best way to do that. And I, I would say, and we'll talk to our guests about that today. They play a piece in that process, but they're certainly not the end all and be all. Um, I mean, clearly, uh, excessive testing, excessive anything. Um, is probably not healthy, and I think we're seeing that kind of pushback in our schools and uh, really looking at the relationship of assessment um, and looking at how that can actually inform instruction is absolutely critical. So um, with no further ado, I think we've, uh, as I said, have a great show ahead of us. We have three great guests. I'm going to ask them quickly to introduce themselves, give you a little bit about their background, and I'm first going to introduce you, Stuart. Um, Stuart, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, thank you, Michael. I'm I'm Stuart Call. I'm a uh, founder and former CEO of Measured Progress, an educational testing company that's been around for 30 years now. I'm a former teacher at all levels from fifth grade through graduate school. Um, my background is curriculum and instruction, actually, even though I've been in assessment for uh, uh, close to 40 years now. Um, Measured Progress is primarily known for its uh, statewide testing large-scale assessment. Uh, right now we're in over 20 states with all or portions of the state testing programs. Half our contracts are general assessment, half are uh, assessment of students with uh, moderate to severe learning disabilities. We're not a publisher. High point of my career is probably the uh, authentic assessment era in the late 80s, early 90s, when our company did a lot of work in performance assessment and portfolio assessment. Uh, I travel, speak a lot on the topics of formative assessment, curriculum embedded performance assessment, and assessment literacy. Well, thank you for that, Stuart. And uh, I guess I didn't realize the fifth grade experience there. Now, that's 
That's the test of a real educator. <laughs> I think seventh and eighth would be tougher. Well, and and yet that's the area that my wife particularly likes, which is why she can put up with me. So thank you for that, Stuart. Let me go turn to Elizabeth now. Um, uh, I've only just gotten to know Elizabeth recently, and actually we're doing some collaborations on some interesting projects that we won't talk about here. But Elizabeth, tell us something about yourself. Well, um, hearing about Stuart's experience in the middle school ages, I come from an early childhood background, and having been an administrator, um, I bring to the work that I currently do, I'm a managing associate with EdCount. We're a D.C.-based firm um, that addresses needs of educators around uh, anything related to curriculum, instruction, assessment, and helping folks align well align their systems and focus on federal policy and think about how they can provide services that best meet the needs of students and teachers. We have a specific focus on standards assessment and accountability, specifically for students with uh, learning disabilities as well as English learners. And um, my work particularly focuses on the design of curriculum and supports for teachers around that curriculum, so leading a lot of professional development and designing systems that will meet educators' needs and promote best practices in the classroom. Perfect. And uh, I know having spoken with several people over um, at uh, at Elizabeth's organization, EdCount, that uh, real dedicated to good quality education. So, uh Thank you, Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Sure. And then uh, uh, last, but uh, certainly not least, is Sean Morgan. And uh, Sean is here, uh, although both of our other guests um, are certainly well-grounded. Sean lives the dream, the nightmare every day, Sean. What should I say? Well, well, I guess a little bit of both. Um, thanks for having me on your show, Michael. Um, just, uh, you know, so people can understand my background. Um, I've spent the last 17 years uh, working in urban education uh, and uh, in role as a classroom teacher, um, an instructional coach for mathematics, and an administrator. And throughout that time, I've, you know, if you understand urban schools in our country, certainly uh, many of the children um, are coming from backgrounds that uh, lend themselves to struggling in schools, uh, both academically and socially. I've spent a lot of my time trying to work with teachers and in and around learning progressions where we're trying to fill in the gaps for these students who are, um, you know, anywhere from two to three years behind and trying to look for growth in areas that necessarily don't show up on the summative assessments. And recently I've left the school systems and have started work with uh, the Central New York Regional Information Center as a data coordinator, where I still get to work with teachers, uh, primarily looking at data um, both lar on a large and small scale and its potential impact on instruction and then also working with schools with all the verification uh, that is being uh, being uh, sent down from the state at the state level tied with all the uh, requirements around APPR and teacher evaluation and whatnot. Well, that sounds like living the dream if I ever heard of it. So. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I think that uh, uh, really, um, given your uh, background working directly with the schools and then now in your supporting role, et cetera, I think you'll um, provide us with some good uh, uh, down-to-earth feedback about what we hear and, and what we're discussing. So with that, um, we have three wonderful guests, and now we're going to go into what I hear from everybody is their favorite segment, and that is You Can't Handle the Truth. So uh, if you haven't listened to this before, each guest is provided with a rumor um, that is based on issues that are occurring in our education industry. Um, and then you listeners um, should try to guess uh, which of the rumors is actually a truth. And in fact, one of them is true. And we're going to discuss that with our guests at the end of the program. So you want to probably listen in for uh, for what we talk about. But all of these uh, rumors are about issues around assessment. So with that said, let me go first to Elizabeth, who is going to read um, to us a rumor called Flipped Assessment. Go ahead, Elizabeth. Sure. Everyone was fed up with all the testing at Lawrenceton Elementary. By the time the students were in sixth grade, they had gone through several banks of tests each year. The students had become rather resigned to the pattern of testing punctuated by learning. Teachers, on the other hand, were frustrated with the time being spent on preparing for testing, giving students tests, and then making sure they were on track for the next set of assessments. If there was one benefit, it was that the parents and teachers were aligned in their disgust. Sound familiar? Just two years before Lawrenceton Elementary had received a new principal, someone who had supported progressive educational views, but the educators and community had yet to see that in her leadership. In the fall of her third year, however, she caught the teachers off guard. She shared that although the students would have to take some tests, she would say no to those that she could. In order to maintain parity with the other schools in the district, she had gotten the district to agree to flipped assessments. For a couple of the tests, the students would be allowed to work collaboratively, open book and open internet to develop a test for their teacher. The principal said at the staff meeting later and later at the parents' open house that she was just tired of students only being on the receiving end of assessments and that her experience is that she became a much better student and test taker when she gained the experience as a test writer. One teacher told us that all those other classrooms think they're flipped and all they are is on their side. We have learned to really flip the educational process. Well, thank you for that great reading, Elizabeth. I, I uh, particularly like being on their side. So, um uh, that is uh, a school where the principal took uh, some leadership and not only flipped the classroom, but actually flipped assessment by having students design assessments um, and give those to the teacher. So thank you, Elizabeth. Let's go ahead and turn to our uh, next guest, and that's Stuart. Um, Stuart, can you uh, tell us a little bit about your rumor called Test This? All right. Normally, an academically above-average school Caulfield High was sent reeling by the test results received on last year's high-stakes assessments. The scores had dropped several percentage points in both mathematics and language arts. As the administration tried to keep the scores quiet, they searched for a possible cause of the change. They had not seen a similar drop in student academic achievement, and interviews with teachers generated the usual complaints about students being insufficiently prepared, but no real change from prior years. Although the data were aggregated, they could see the distribution of scores. Just as the story broke in the news, in the local news, the school district psychometrician recognized that the distribution had changed. While much of the distribution of scores was much as it had been in the past, 
They had fewer high scores. With parents breathing down their necks, they looked for some event that might have resulted in this shift. While interviewing some of the students classified as gifted and talented, however, it slowly became apparent that this shift was the result of a concerted effort. We were tired of taking test after test, and this seemed far more fun, said a gifted and talented 10th grade student. Another chimed in, once we realized that these test scores were to measure the school and not us, we thought, it, we, thought we could have some fun. It was then that it came out that these students were not challenged by school or assessments, and this was their way of making the assessment interesting and challenging. How many of you could get 100% on any multiple choice assessment? Thank you for that, Stuart. And I think actually, now that I read that, I think how many of you could get 100% wrong on, on any multiple choice assessment? I know that's not what it says, um, but I realized that as you were reading that. So um, the point being that the kids had challenged themselves um, and recognized that they weren't being assessed, but rather um, it was the school and decided that uh, it wasn't their neck who was, that was on the line. So they decided to have some fun with that. Thank you so much, Stuart, for reading that. And uh, the last item we've got is, uh, is, uh, is going to be read to us by Sean, and it's called Assess the Assessor. Go ahead, Sean. All right. Thank you, Michael. Parents, politi politicians, and pundits are not the only people who have written critiques of our educational system. A 17-year-old student was sufficiently perturbed by the state of affairs that he wrote a manifesto on the state of education in the U.S. His love for reading and writing was ignited, as it was for so many of his generations, generation by the work of J.K. Rowling and her Harry Potter series. particular project had its roots in his debates with similarly precocious youth in on education reform and current affairs, further fueled by travel abroad where educational alternatives to those in the U.S. became apparent. He spoke with over 100 educational experts, and students all across the U.S. and internationally to form a coherent and insightful argument for how our schools not only shortchange our young but e and even undermine their learning. He takes the educational system to task for embracing institutions such as the Advanced Placement Test and SAT, which he sees as undermining not just learning but also learner motivation and goal setting. He takes shots at the educational system with the fervor of one just released from a long term of forced labor. From a position quite distant from youth, we can admire his unchecked contempt and also wonder whether the onset of adulthood will temper or hone his sharp mind. Either way, this young man makes a compelling argument that he is the way he is despite his schooling. Well, thank you so much for that, Sean, and reading um, a story about a student who decided to assess those that had assessed him for 13 years. And, uh, again, another look at uh, how uh, how we feel about the assessments that we're engaged with. So we have three great uh, rumors. One, uh, flipped assessment. The other one is test this. And the last one is assess the assessor. Go ahead and think about which one you think um, is, is the truth and uh, maybe some of the items around those. And feel free to... Uh, to tweet at uh, hashtag ETT or at EdTableTalk, um, and you will, will certainly look at your tweets there. Um, before we jump into the actual topic of today's conversation, I do want to just say a little bit about our 
um, our sponsor, MCH Strategic Data. Um, they, again, I've you've heard it before on the show. I really admire the work that they do. They've just come out with a publication called the Fourth Annual Principles Assessment of Public Education. Um, uh, again, sponsored by MCH, but uh, written by um, Annie Tyke, one of my favorite people. And uh, they looked at 539 principles nationwide, and uh, really in that in that uh, document, which is quite readable, by the way, um, not not huge, not too difficult, but really gets at the point. Really discuss issues around Common Core implementation, technology, role of apps in schools, uh, funding, early childhood education, some of the primary concerns that schools are grappling with, critical issues that they're dealing with, principal leadership, and also a good summary of some key trends. I thought particularly interesting was their point that uh, uh, asking schools whether they were still, how they were working with Common Core and where they were in their implementation, 4.3% said that they're still planning. Um, 59.3% said they're doing it now. And uh, 36.4% said they're already done. Um, uh, statistically pro- quite interesting, although I think the interesting conversation, what does it mean to be all done with implementing, um, with preparing for Common Core? So another conversation for another time for another show. But again, that's MCH Strategic Data, and uh, you can find them online. Uh, so um, let's go ahead and jump into our, our program segment right now and talk a little bit about you know, what is it about assessment? Um, what is it about summative assessment? And how can it be reformed? And how do we blur that line between learning and testing? Anybody want to jump in with that conversation? No, this, this is Stuart. I'm, I'm happy to start. Please. Um, I find that what, what we warned folks decades ago before NCLB about the impact of high-stakes testing on instruction was, was, was somewhat or has been ignored. And I've never met an educator who, who argues against being held accountable, but at the same time, how it's done is a problem. And the types of tests that exist in the past 10, 15 years, because of the pressures for turnaround time, for parental choice decisions, and all of that stuff, have led to the efficiently administered almost all multiple choice tests. A lot of states dropped more innovative programs for the testing that, that they had to do in all these grades. And basically, Teachers are going to strive to get high performance on those tests from their students. They're going to emulate those tests in their own tests. And as a result, I believe teachers for the last several years have seen a lot less of student work because they themselves are using the same kinds of tests that are being used uh, for the high-stakes decision-making. Absolutely. Michael, Um, Michael, I can jump in there and, and, and kind of support that point. Um, in, in my experience of beginning to work with teachers, as in um, uh, New York State, they've implemented a new teacher evaluation system. And, uh, you know, the results, uh, in my opinion, the result is that we are starting to focus a significant amount of our time uh, worrying about labels we're putting on children of what level they are and numbers and um, teachers really are starting to lose their ability to make in, um, real instructional decisions based on the uniqueness of the child and are kind of stuck in a box of saying um, things such as, oh, he's a level two, so he needs this type of intervention, or she's a level three, so she's doing okay, instead of really beginning to focus on the uniqueness of each individual child. And in turn, we're, you know, I'm starting to see teachers 
who are losing their passion because it's not as exciting and um, I, I guess as meaningful to uncover what a child's strengths really are and what makes that child special as opposed to um, focusing on labels and numbers that are really used in a way because they're just, and at least from my perspective, much easier to communicate out to the general public when you can just throw a number on something and say, okay, so 59% of our students are performing at a level four or a level three right. or whatever it may be. You know, I think that's you know, a good point. Um, both of the points Stuart and Sean make about really holding folks accountable. Um, I, I agree with Stuart that, and all the teachers I know and have worked with, everyone's really comfortable with being held accountable, but the methods for doing that you know, have changed, and that's what's uncomfortable for folks. Um, one of the things I want to kind of throw out there, the devil's advocate, um, some of our federal policies, and most recently the ESEA flexibility waivers, really push states to think about how they're using that data and how they're analyzing the data from the subgroups to push student learning um, where they have underperforming subgroups. And in my experience in working with states and districts against this measure, we're really trying to help them think of solutions for how do we reach our English learners, how do we reach our students with disabilities in some of these innovative ways and helping craft solutions that may be a little bit outside the norm of what we've been seeing. Um, so I, I feel like it's an opportunity a little bit to think about things differently and to push policymakers and folks at the state level to think about the way we ask teachers to work with students a little bit differently. I, I have to add to that uh, uh, that, that while we can be critical of the of the federal law and and the impact and the uh, and the nature of the instruments, one of the very positive impacts of, of No Child Left Behind has been the exclusiveness, the inclusiveness that all students of the students were responsible for and that has that has accomplished a, a good deal for for many students who were basically ignored for people who uh it was felt that babysitting was all that was needed and and these kids can achieve and so uh, a lot of groups are uh who have been maybe ignored or or uh not acknowledged so much in the past are uh, are, are actually very supportive of, uh, of of the annual testing and uh, and the inclusion of these students with moderate to severe learning disabilities. So, do you think that's you know interesting issues uh, that you've each brought up? Um, but I look at this juxtaposition between the need to uh, assess and quantify and and sort students. And the benefits that potentially come from that, as you pointed out, Stuart, but also what's lost in that process. I mean, it's hard to say that you've personalized because you've given a student a number. And, and uh, you know, uh, I, I do agree that it has brought attention to um, some of our underrepresented groups um, in, in the past. I guess my concern is that you, t you take a um, child who has an IEP and has, you know, is in a special edu education program, which designates them as a unique learner in some ways, 
and, and certainly different from maybe their learning styles from their regular ed counterparts, and yet we're still turn and and assess them using the same exact measures with the in in the same exact fashion, and I just feel like you know we've taken a successful model and successful um, laws in this country, in particular with the, uh, the special education uh, aspect of education, and we're kind of undermining it by using kind of this broad overarching assessment approach for these students when, uh, you know, I think you can make a very good argument that maybe that special education model should be used more when we think about, okay, so how are we going to um, measure learning in our students across the board because it's a much more individualistic approach. You know, this makes me think, um, Sean, what you're talking about with some of the curriculum design work that we do, I'm, I'm thinking about backward design and moving from our end goals backward to what our real learning outcomes are intended to be and building our instruction on that. And I think that that's where sometimes we've gotten a little bit mixed up is that we're building assessments that don't necessarily align with the instruction that's happening in our classrooms and we're trying to retrofit the instruction and mm -hmm. in reality, we may need to think of it in the opposite way. Um, while we do need, and I, I see a lot of classrooms where teachers need to adjust their instruction, um, it's a huge shift and it's a lift. I think, um, Michael, what you were talking about in reference to the work that MCH Strategic Data was doing on his principal's report, uh, this transition to Common Core, folks are all over the place with this, and no one's ready for the next generation assessment. And I don't know that anyone's going to admittedly ever be ready, but we need to help people see how the instruction that they're doing in the classroom can get them ready for some type of assessment. I don't know if the current assessments are going to be the solution. Um, clearly, lots of states feel like they're not going to be either. But that's kind of my question, and I don't know the answer. What's first, the assessment or the instruction, and, and what do we start with? I think the uh, point about retrofitting instruction is a, is a good one. We're retrofitting construction to, 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 to match the, the test that we find not appropriate. And uh, that, that gets at the impact of the high-stakes testing. Uh, in, in my mind, first off, you've got to look at different levels of, of, of what data needs are. And at, at people at the highest level removed from the classroom have different needs than the classroom teacher. The classroom teacher, in my mind, has to see student work, one thing. And that, that, that calls for a different kind of evidence gathering. I, I believe uh, accountability assessment programs really should have multiple components uh, including uh, a local component. I've, I've been preaching for the last year or so about curriculum embedded performance assessments, which, which actually are instructional units with multiple activities, some leading to evidence that can be used for formative purposes and some leading to evidence that can be used for summative purposes. The latter, in my mind, ought to be a component of the uh, accountability data. I would, so, I would agree with those points, Stuart. I think that really evaluating student evidence and using that as a tool, um, I completely agree with the notion of formative assessment as a driver for 
um, looking at how students are performing, giving actionable evidence and feedback to students, and then, you know, in some ways using that summatively. I think pushing the model a little bit in that direction is really where we need to go so that we can re-engage educators in the process and value what they bring to this. Um, they know their students. They understand the needs within that classroom, and that's really important. We can't undervalue that. Well stated. Yeah. I think uh, one thing to, um, and, and you know, the, there, this may not make me sound very teacher friendly, or uh, could be taken out of context. Um, you know, that that formative piece that I think is essential uh, to kind of swing the pendulum back and and create, you know, that engagement that we we all seem to be on the same page about. That's also going to require some, you know, some new responsibilities uh, uh, being placed back on teachers in that this summative approach kind of takes the responsibility about thinking as far as what needs to be taught because it's predetermined. It, you know, as, as we go and think about, well, let's move into a more formative approach and a more kind of uh, performance-based assessment, it will put back on teachers kind of, Yes, they will have more say in what happens in their classroom, but it will also require, you know, more knowledge kind of around learning progressions and the sequence and acquisition of skills and how do you begin to demonstrate that the child is moving along at an appropriate pace. So, the, you know, I do think the frustration that I hear from teachers about not having control, when we do get, if and when we're able to give that control back and have a little more influence on what's going on in the room, it's going to put a little bit more responsibility back on the classroom teacher as well. Actually, we're going to have a show. We're going to have a show coming up in a few months, uh, really talking about uh, dashboards for educators and uh, whether they're tools that can help support uh, their role and a more active role. Um, and uh, and I think that's that's part of what you're getting at there, Sean. Uh, we're going to take a, a break from our conversation. I know I thought I heard you, Stuart, just to jump in, so hang on to that thought. Um, and uh, one of the ways that we uh, thank our guests for participating in the show is we actually donate $50 towards a Donors Choose project of their choice. If you're not familiar with Donors Choose, um, it's a place where teachers can put uh, projects that they need funding for. They may not have funding or sufficient funding from their school or school district and uh, are really reaching out to the larger community. So I'm going to ask uh, our guests just to tell you uh, a little bit about which which project they selected and why. And I'm going to go turn to you, Sean, first. Um, for your project, do you love reading as much as I do? Can you tell us just a bit about why you selected that? Yeah, some, the project I chose is um, uh, was presented by a teacher who was looking to um, build her classroom library. Uh, she works in uh, a school on the west side of the city of Syracuse, which is one of the poorest areas actually in the country. And the school she works at falls into what is deemed as the innovation zone in the city of Syracuse, uh, which before I started my role at current role at Sunny Rick, I was um, an administrator in a different um, innovation zone school. So pretty close to my heart. And um, just knowing that, the, um, that many of these students certainly come from homes where there just are not books in, in available for them. And so I thought, you know, 
this was a nice way to support getting new, modern, um, up-to-date books into students' hands so they have an opportunity to uh, read along with all their other kind of peers throughout the area. Well, that's wonderful. We, um, My organization, Educational Systemics, had actually run some book clubs with young kids, and they just couldn't believe that they could keep the book. Um, yeah. And that's a sad that's a sad sign, but how exciting! Right. So uh, great selection, thank you. Let me go next to Stuart. Um, you selected help my students read more books they love to read, and I want to say nobody communicated between these two about what they selected. Well, in in, in fact, I feel like my reasoning has already been given. But anyway, yeah. uh, this this was a program uh, that was also the purchasing of, of books for, in this case, for classroom use, uh, and and. A lot of discussion by the teacher who proposed it of how the book, books would be used and the uh, the type of understandings that the kids would be uh, encouraged to uh, uh, to accomplish through the use of of, of this set of books. Um, my my reasoning is really just pretty much my experience with my own kids um, and in the early years, the early elementary and before, uh, uh, just reading was 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 so important. And of course, we know that. This is this is this is a head start that kids need is is, is early reading and um, uh, in, in my case for this project it's 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 actually early elementary but at the same time all disciplines require this reading we had a program in my local community that was uh, book buddies which was essentially twice a year buying books for for kids who uh, um, whose families probably didn't didn't buy books for them very often. And uh, in any case, anything we can do to get kids reading and enjoying it is 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 really critical. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think about the two R's, reading and reasoning. So uh, <laughs> hopefully they're engaged in thinking about what they read as well, but getting them to decode and make sense out of that is certainly an important start. Um. Last, uh, Elizabeth, you had selected Lego Legends Become Legendary. Tell us about that one. Sure. So I also value literacy just as Sean and Stuart do, but I went in a little different direction with this selection um, because New York City is near and dear to my heart. Having been a public school teacher there, I wanted to select a school based out of New York. So this is a charter school in Queens where they're looking to start a Lego program as an after-school program for their first to fourth graders. And this is a STEM initiative that's really aimed at developing the whole child. So not only building the academic skills, but building social skills, creativity, strengthening leadership, within the students and really just getting them to broaden their horizons beyond what they're getting in their regular school day. So um, this was brought to me by a former colleague, and I thought it was a great opportunity to promote some of that out-of-the-box type of thinking about how we educate kids. Perfect. And with Legos, it truly is out-of-the-box, but hopefully back in at the end. of Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks to all three of you for uh, for selecting such great projects. And again, we're we're proud at uh, Ed Table Talk to help support uh, the projects of Donors Choose and recommend that you take an opportunity to take a look through uh, their offerings and the things that teachers are looking to do. It's always fun to look, and who knows, maybe you'll donate something there as well. 
Um, let's go back to our conversation. Um, Stuart, you were going to jump in with something, if you remember what that was. Uh, yeah, actually, at the, at the time, there was a point about a formative assessment. And yeah, uh, one of the things I, I remember about somewhere between five and ten years ago, I spoke to a very large group in San Francisco uh, about how the, the term formative assessment was, was pirated by the, uh, by the assessment industry. And uh, it wasn't too popular with my colleagues across the country. But anyway, um, uh, what what happened was there were some researchers at ETS, uh, Black and William, who found that that effective formative assessment, as they defined it, had a tremendous impact on learning, particularly Mm. for the disadvantaged students who were further behind. And they defined it as an instructional, a multi-step instructional process in which one step is is evidence-gathering uh, during the learning, not necessarily scored because it's before the kids have reached the level they're going to reach. And what what I saw happening at that time and, and for some time after that is just about everything in the catalogs had the word formative assessment associated with it. So it became an instrument, mm-hmm. a test or a tool, very often a, a quickly administered multiple-choice test, computer-administered with the immediate results put out there and the number correct getting into the electronic grade book and so on, and that is not what formative assessment is. Formative assessment is, is far more than that, and I, I just thought it was a relevant term because the, the, the teachers really need uh, uh, to, to, to change how they spend their time, and the students have to change how they spend their time in the classroom, and formative assessment done right accomplishes that. Yeah, Mike, I can speak to that. Um, I you know, had some opportunities in the past to work with Margaret Heritage, who um, – you know, is well known for her work with formative assessment, and she fights against that too, in that it kind of has been taken and simplified. And, you know, formative assessment is actually a instructional practice that encompasses questioning, feedback, um, knowing your learning progressions. And, you know, you it has been kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of dumbed down into minimal checks for understanding in the classroom and mm-hmm. and things that have to show up on lesson plans. Um, and I think if we took it for what it truly was intended to be and used it in a way, it certainly can play a role to help um, offset or balance the summative assessments that um, seem to dominate education today. Let me, like let me throw... Go ahead, Elizabeth. I was just going to say that I'm also a big fan of formative assessment and having collaborated with Margaret Heritage as well, really believe in the message and her um, message about formative assessment. But I think what it comes down to is that we haven't really figured out how to translate that notion to teachers and make it real for classroom instruction. So on the surface, people understand what formative assessment is, but I don't know that we have a lot of good models for how it works in classrooms. And so that's why we're coming up with all these quick and, you know, in quotes, easy ways to deliver formative assessment when we all know that that's not really what it is. It's really internalizing practices as a teacher and understanding how to look at your students' work, to engage with your students and really understand what they're learning and and how to encourage them to assess and analyze their own learning. And I think that that's a huge piece of it, is we really need to push it so that students are really part of that process and owning their own learning and being able to adjust 
and reflect on that so that they can take steps to promote their learning. I so love that. Um, uh, and, and we've talked about that before. I want to throw out an, an, an alternative term and want to get your thoughts about this. You know, so often we, we like to institutionalize things that we call assessment. I think there's just a tendency to do that. What if we instead took the other side of formative assessment and instead referred to it maybe as reflective instruction? You can boo me if you want. Actually, I, I don't know that the there's always terminology issues, and so people could praise that because clearly we want the kids and the teachers reflecting on their learning, and 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 that leading to you know using using information from the data gathering and adjusting instruction and knowledge of uh, of, of learning progressions. All of that plays a role there. So it's a good term. Um, you know, people might argue, does it capture the full process? Uh, Possibly not, but then neither does the term formative assessment. <laughs> well, and, uh, and the term assessment carries all that baggage. Exactly. I I said there was no problem with the term formative assessment except for the two words they used. There's formative. <laughs> they used, there used to be formative program evaluation, which can be using summative tests, but then you use that information to improve the program the following year. Um, and then assessment, put it in the domain of the assessment companies, which it shouldn't be. It's an instructional process, and it's in the area of, of curriculum and instruction, not, not assessment. But that, so the terminology leads to all kinds of problems, I'm afraid. And I think, to me, reflection is important, and, and what I hear from educators is that there's just not time. So whether we call it reflection, whether we call it formative assessment, I don't have time to learn that new thing that I don't know about. And... So I think, again, crafting ways that we can incorporate it into what teachers are already doing and show them how to make that happen and how to integrate it with their current practices is the best approach for getting folks to use formative assessment in, in the practices. You know, I, I think very effective teachers probably follow the, the, the sequence of steps in, in, in the formative assessment process. Uh, and, and so it's not, a, it's not totally newfangled, mind you, but putting it all together is. I, I wanted to point out that the state of Michigan actually has a program training uh, uh, teaching teacher leaders in schools all across the state, and each year they add more of these teacher leaders. But it's a kind of professional development that is, fits the, the notion of effective professional development because it, it, the same teachers are brought back multiple times. They're engaged in interaction throughout the year with each other. And uh, I think they've reached, I don't know by now, whether it's four, five, six hundred teachers across the state uh, on a recurring basis. Uh, so it's, it's a model that, that some folks might look at in uh, at least looking at their content anyway uh, in the state of Michigan. Perfect. I think there, there are a number of uh, good models, and it's nice to see when they've been, I wouldn't say institutionalized, but when they've become part of the culture. Um, and I think that's I think that's another component to this. I I have a question for you, Sean. Just you you grapple a lot with sort of big data issues at the same time as having a lot of interest in for you know formative assessment. Mm -hmm. um, and where do you see the two worlds coming together, or in in terms of real practice? Or does the formative aspect just sort of fall by the wayside? And do we heard earlier teachers don't have time to do this? Is that, or or let me even ask a more pointed question: um, Do they even have enough control 
our ownership over their um, instructional processes to really be able to affect a change? I think, you know, if you were to ask teachers in general at this point, they feel like they're losing that ability to make those instructional decisions. Now, I, I have the opportunity to sit a lot with teachers who have great conversations around data um, that is presented to them, both at a summative level and, and a, more form, uh, a more formative level. But even those pieces of data that come to them are having to be approved by policies that are determined at the state level as far as screening measures and what, what can and can't be used when we're try, attempting to measure student growth. And I think Elizabeth's point earlier in that, you know, getting at the, the formative side of things, it's hard work and it's messy and it's not easily, um, I guess, kind of presented out as evidence. But that, that's the part that's missing. And as a result, I think, you know, this focus on this larger scale data is really um, taking us down a path where we're getting disconnected students and disconnected teachers. And if I went back to if people could remember what I read earlier as far as the um, the rumor uh, piece on the assessment, I mean, that student was very articulate in, in that kind of vignette. But working in an urban school, uh, my students, you know, also are kind of articulated in their own way, their frustrations with kind of a type of education that appears and that comes across as meaningless to them because it, that summative piece puts it in a one-size-fits-all. And in my role, we're trying to pull in other pieces of data to tailor it to students. But we're struggling with that, and it seems to be going in that opposite direction that we're not getting less summative. We're actually going to be focusing more on those summative pieces. Right. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to end our conversation on this topic. I told our guests it's going to go fast. And and hopefully um, those of you who are listening uh, uh, feel compelled to dig into this further and uh, want to spend more time. We are going to ask our guests at the end of the show to answer the question about what parting recommendation they would like to make to a publisher who wants to be a better who wants to better integrate assessment um, that informs instruction. So I know they've been thinking about that and maybe uh, thinking about their answers. Um, as it relates to the discussion. Um, I'm just going to quickly, um, again, thank MCA Strategic Data, our uh, our sponsor, uh, our primary sponsor for uh, Ed Table Talk, and, and just let you know about another item that they have that uh, you'll find useful. We're going to go into our segment on gaming the conference next. And uh, MCH actually provides uh, what they call their scheduler, uh, S-C-H-E-D-U-L-R, um, which is uh, was jointly sponsored by the Winter Group, um, Linda and her gang over there. And uh, you can actually download uh, this. Uh, it's either it runs on iOS or Android, um, and it gives you the date, the location, the deadlines, conference contacts, conference profiles, links to the conference website, and uh, a map as to where that conference is being held so that you can know which conferences are coming up as they relate to your particular um, product and, and where you can get a chance to see your customers and, and even learn a little bit more about what's happening in the field that you're serving. So again, you can find that schedule application 
on the MCH website. Go ahead and download that. I've certainly been using it and found it very, very useful. And again, thank MCH for their sponsorship of Ed Table Talk. Um, we're going to go into our next segment, which is Gaming the Conference, and we're going to talk a little bit about some conferences that are coming up, most of which are related to assessment, um, and certainly all conferences in education have some relationship to assessment. And Stuart, why don't you uh, give us a little bit about uh, uh, one that was particularly of interest to you, which is the CCSSO's um, National Conference on Student Assessment, which is being held in June in San Diego. Uh, yeah, this this assessment uh, many years ago used to be called the Large Scale Assessment Conference, but because of the very topics we've been talking about now, it's it's called the National Conference on Student Assessment because it it, it sees that uh, that external high stakes statewide accountability assessment isn't the end all be all, and that there should be some consistency across the what's what's done for accountability and what's happening in the classroom so it's a conference that really presents a lot of sessions uh that that are very consistent with our conversations uh, uh with our conversation today it takes place in june this year in san diego 22nd to 24th and uh it it is attended by a lot of state department folks and uh but but they have made a, a sincere effort in the last uh, five or six years to attract uh, uh, the district and, and local school folks to, to present on, on their programs as well. Perfect. Well, thank you, and I've, I've heard wonderful things. I have not gone to that conference, but it's one I certainly like to put on my short list. Um, let's go next. Elizabeth, you wanted to share with us a little bit about the National Title I Conference that is coming up fast. It's uh, February 5th through 8th in Salt Lake City. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. The National Title I Association is really dedicated to bringing together state Title I directors and others who work to um, create the solutions, programs, and represent the needs of Title I families according to the federal policy. And um, the interesting thing about this year's conference is that it is celebrating 50 years of Title I um, with the 1965 authorization of ESEA. And their theme this year is leading with wonder. And um, to quote that theme, remember the magic time when the world of learning began to open before our eyes. So we're hearkening back to the uh, signing of ESEA in 1965 and thinking about that landmark legislation and how that's really shaped our practices over the last half of, of a century. And the Title I program, um, really shape a lot of what happens down at the local school level. So this conference has um, not only the state level decision makers, but also down to the classroom level. And the folks that attend this conference are really coming for those um, really hands-on learning and practices that they can take back to their classrooms and meet the needs of their students, but all aligned with the policies of Title I. Perfect. Uh, and thanks for sharing that. And you'll, you'll be there, right? I will be there. I'll be presenting on differentiation and uh, teacher autonomy and creating differentiated instructional activities that are aligned with curriculum. And, and you'll be signing people's conference books. Is that right? <laughs> I don't know if that will be me, but I will be glad to. There you go. See, what, what a <laughs> wonderful offer. And that's only for your Ed Table Talk listeners, of course. Um, of course. Last, uh, not last, but Sean, I think you were going to tell us about DataWise. Is that right? Uh, yes. Um, 
hoping to be attending with a school district I'm working with. Um, and it, it's not necessarily the conference more than a course, but data-wise, which is, you know, based out of Harvard and, you know, essentially trying to create, how do you create a culture of using multiple points of data um, and, and as a way to improve practice and instructional outcomes. And so, you know, if you think, if you think about it, the reality is data isn't, nor should it go away. And we're, we're going to be given, you know, large scale pieces of data, small scale pieces of data. And then how do you put that together in kind of a coherent fashion where the end result is improving student outcomes? And so it, I think it's about, it's a week long and, um, you know, kind of, uh, hopefully it came through today, sits with kind of my my kind of passion or what I see potentially as how data can impact our students in a positive way. Yeah, and it, and it's not a, a conference like the other two are particularly. It's not really a vendor area from what I understand. It's really focused on district personnel and learning among the groups. Is that right? It is. It is. And, you know, I just wonder, though, if the people who, you know, the the companies and those involved in creating assessments kind of got a feel for how do these data meetings run, what's the culture like in schools that do this well, could that potentially allow them to have the opportunity to develop assessments that were more maybe in alignment with the needs and um, of both students and teachers. Right. Right. Makes sense. I wanted to bring up, thanks for that, Sean. Um, I want to bring up three other conferences. Um, I'd be remiss after, uh, with this show, not to bring up ATP, the Association of Test Publishers. Um, and they have Innovations in Testing Conference, which is March 1st through 4th in Rancho Mirage. For those of you who are suffering in a very cold place right now, um, just dream of Rancho Mirage. Um, <laughs> and sitting with a bunch of assessment people. What could be more fun? And ATP actually addresses a lot around, as, as, uh, as Stuart reminded me, a, a, lot, a little bit more technology-focused than maybe some of the other assessments. But again, I, I have found when I've gone um, it to be just a wonderful conference and getting a deep dive into some of the areas uh, that are really essential to enacting these kinds of assessments. Two other conferences I just want to mention. One is the NSTA Conference, National Science Teachers, coming up in Chicago, uh, March 12th through 15th. And uh, always a great conference. The show floor is always fun. The sessions are great. And uh, uh, a lot of decision makers um, at that conference. Um, the other one would be NCTM, National Council for Teachers of Mathematics being held in Boston this year, um, April 15th through 18th. So if you uh, don't have that on your plans, you should uh, soon, especially if you're involved with math assessments. And then, uh, uh, Stuart, you wanted to bring up that we don't want to forget about our other subject areas, particularly NCSS. Um, and I know we mentioned their conference usually held in November, but uh, did you want to put a plug in for social sciences? Well, absolutely. I mean, there's so much attention to science and mathematics and STEM schools and STEAM schools do add the arts, but but uh, the social studies folks uh, have some real important uh, content and skills that they that they strive to accomplish in their students. Uh, they have a new uh, C3 framework for standards, and the three Cs are basically college, career, and civic life. Perfect. So. Um, for for those of you who are going to be at the uh, AAPCIC conference, 
um, uh, there's going to be a session on the, the National Social Studies um, framework, and we'll be discussing that issue. So I want to go back now to our You Can't Handle the Truth. Um, we had three different rumors on the table, flipped assessment, test this, and assess the assessor. So let me just ask our, our uh, panelists here, our guests, which, what, what did you think of those three? I, I, I saw some credibility in all of them because I've heard stories just like those stories. <laughs> yeah, I would say uh, all of them seem very um, uh, reasonable as far as being uh, happening. Elizabeth, you want to chime in? Was there any particular point that you wanted to draw out of one of these? Well, you know, I think mine seems a little unlikely just because of the undertaking it would be to do that, um, to have to flip the assessments and really engage in that with all the other things on teachers' plates um, and students. And so I, I feel like it's somewhat unrealistic, but it could happen. <laughs> So which one do you think is true? Discuss amongst yourselves. Which one do you think is the truth? I'm really going with the flipped assessment one, even though it seems maybe the one that uh, might be the least likely. I just feel, you know, that maybe there's some teachers out there who are willing to try some new ideas with their students and uh, get them more involved in the process. Stuart? Well, I, I think the one I read about Caulfield High, I don't know about the the, the the fact in terms of the name of the school or whatever, but I have read a research report somewhere that described a situation very much like this, uh, okay. where, the, where the actually were, were surveyed. And Elizabeth. Yeah, and I was, I was leaning towards Stewart's as well. I was thinking that that seemed most credible to me. Okay, well, we'll go ahead and tell you which one's true. We had one selection for flipped and two for test this. The actual truth um, taken from the story is assess the assessor. And this is about a young man from New York Public Schools who at 17 wrote a book. Um, and I will go ahead and post uh, that book and reference to that online. But the book really was, um, it was about this, just really an, an abhorrence for the standardization that took place in our schools and how that really undermined his learning. So... Uh, I'll make sure that I get that information out to each of you, and uh, and uh, you can find that book actually on Amazon digitally, or you can get a print version on demand from Amazon as well. So thank you for playing. You can't handle the truth. Let me just go final thank you. Um, we're going to get to this recommendations uh, for publishers in just a moment. Our next show is February 24th, uh, same time, looking at uh, new education research. We may, in fact, switch that to gaming, so keep your eye on the site, and you may see what's up. So let me go ahead and turn to our guests again. I want to thank, actually, MCH Strategic Data for their support for the show. And let me turn to our guests and ask them, what would you tell uh, a publisher who wants to better integrate assessment and inform instruction? And let me go to you first, Stuart. Well, I would say the curriculum embedded performance assessment uh, as I defined it, can address all of today's concerns about instruction and assessment. Perfect. And Sean? Uh, I would just uh, remind them that, uh, you know, what made our education great in this country was creativity and that all of our students are coming with different strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, remember that when you're building your assessments. Perfect. And Elizabeth? I would say just don't do it in isolation. Engage educators, listen to their input, value their contributions, and 
give them some autonomy in being part of the development and delivery of new assessment systems. Perfect. Thank you so much to each of our guests, Elizabeth Stewart, Sean, and uh, this was your January Ed Table Talk, um, and we look forward to having you back at the table next month. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Hey, stay warm out there. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Michael. Bye.